unless you tell stories to really impress upon people what different experiences you can have depending on your dimension of diversity, whether that's race, whether that's gender, whether that's having a disability. The storytelling is the most powerful tool we can use. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. In this episode, I'm speaking with Deepa Purshathaman, author and co-founder of Information, and Rylan McClendon, head of diversity, equity, and inclusion for corporate and investment banking at J.P. Morgan. We spoke about the experience women of color have at work, often as the only woman of color in the room. We also talked about women giving themselves the permission to create their own path, even when they feel the responsibility to represent others like them. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Deepa and Ryland, thank you so much for joining us on the Women on the Move podcast. It is great to have you both here with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I would love for our listeners to really start off by understanding more about each of your backgrounds, what you wanted to do when you were little and growing up, where you think you would be in terms of your career, and how you began it. Deepa, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of your early thoughts about what you would do. When I was growing up, I thought I'd be a criminal lawyer. I was involved in politics and policy work leading up to grad school. And then grad school was more focused on that. So I went to Kennedy School. I went to London School of Economics. I thought I'd be working in policy and politics. I went to Deloitte for a year or two, I thought, to get some private sector experience. And then I ended up staying there for 21 years. I left during the early stages of the pandemic. So I left two years ago to focus on women of color research and topics. I spent two decades really focused on the tech and telecom sector and working with large clients on a global scale. Although even when I was with the firm, I did have a large role in inclusion. So I led the women's initiative for Deloitte for a number of years. But I also feel like there's been a strain for me of belonging. I grew up in a very small farm country town. We were one of the only families of color growing up. And so I think the sense of not belonging is actually what I would say is the thread through a lot of what I've worked on. That was always there. When you're one of four or five students of color in school, there's all these questions about fitting in and what's different. And so I think that carried over to grad school. And then even when I was with the firm, there was often times and spaces because I worked in tech and telecom that I was the only woman and especially women of color in spaces. And so I was always very aware of what I was and what I represented and my voice. And so it doesn't feel, I think from the outside, it can look a little bit strange, my career path. But to me, there's always been this sense of trying to make space for leadership to look different and really kind of carrying that through. Thank you so much for all those themes. Really appreciate hearing that. Ryland, tell us about yourself. When I was younger, I actually wanted to be a singer. I think that was largely influenced by my love for the Disney movie, The Little Mermaid. Idolized Ariel, but I think I really admired her desire to want more for herself and the sacrifice she was willing to make in order to achieve that. In terms of my professional career, I knew I wanted to get out of the state of Georgia, spread my wings a little bit. Ended up in North Carolina, went to Duke. I majored in econ and public policy. And where did that come from? The strong influence of my parents. So my dad was in finance. My mom was in public administration. She actually was the first woman and woman of color to be chair of the MARTA board, which was the public transit system in Atlanta. I ended up getting a job right out of school at a regional bank. When I started, the market was like this. It was 2007, then it crashed. So we were all just happy to have jobs. But then as the labor market started to thaw and we had taken all this responsibility on stress testing companies and looking at covenants and how is the bank doing, but nobody was talking to us about getting promoted. It got to a point where it was really frustrating and everybody just said, oh, keep doing what you're doing and it'll come. 
And that just didn't sit well with me. By happenstance, I went to a bank meeting down in Florida for a client and met a JP Morgan banker. And about a month later, she called me up and said, hey, we've got an associate role in our Atlanta office. Are you interested? And I said, sure. And so I interviewed and got the role. So I started at the firm a little over 12 years ago, and it has been a fantastic experience for me. I think similar to what Deepa shared, it's been a very circuitous path. I started in corporate banking, and now I'm in HR. And a lot of people ask me, how did that come about? It seems random looking back, but when you take the stepping stones, it made a lot of sense. I was just so energized by the work, had the best performance review at that point in my career when I did it. And it was just so eye-opening to me. That really helped me understand what I was passionate about and what I was good at. So in 2017, I moved over to HR, ran campus recruiting for three years. There were some organizational changes happening. And I said, okay, this feels like a good time to kind of put some feelers out there, look at some other things, which I did. Landed in Firmwide Talent, which was so fortuitous because I got to work with Sam on a talent program that we built out, which was so exciting and so fun that we launched after the pandemic. That's been so rewarding to see that program grow and blossom. And then I got a call two years ago from a colleague who at the time was the head of diversity and inclusion for the investment bank. And she said, hey, I'm taking a new role. I've told my manager and his manager that I think you'd be great as the next head of diversity and inclusion. And so I I threw my hat in the ring and got the role and have been now in the seat, as I said, for a couple of years. So appreciative for every experience I've had along the way. It's so interesting to hear both of you talk about your roads to what I will call now the DE&I space, the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. I too feel like I've had a unplanned journey into this area. And I'll tell you the story of how that came to be. I went to business school after spending a few years as a journalist covering business topics. And I really thought I would go to business school and either become a writer afterwards or be on the business side of media. And in our orientation, our professor asked us to take the Myers-Briggs test. I'd never taken that before. And he asked me as an aside, do you mind if I put up your profile? I'll be anonymous. I won't say who it is. I just want to show everybody what a profile looks like. So I said, that's fine. My profile happened to be ENFJ. So he puts it up and he says, this profile looks like someone who probably will be in human resources, who likes people, who wants to do things with people. And I'm thinking to myself, but I didn't go to business school to do that. I went to business school to be a business person. And that's really what I thought. And I think back at that story, and I think it's so funny and maybe telling that early indicators suggested I would have this kind of leaning down the road. So I very much appreciate both of you talking about your stories. You know, Deepa, I'm wondering how being in this space now fully for you, more than what you're doing at Deloitte then, how has that changed your career? How has that maybe led you to different experiences or being able to share your skills with other people in a new way? I went from a 20-year career where I lived on a plane and it was a very intense sort of career and very client service oriented. So you're always on call to writing. I wrote a book that came out last year. And so I spent almost a year just kind of in a cocoon writing launching a company that was focused on creating community for women of color, and then doing research, a little bit of teaching. And so now I have an association with Harvard Business School where I'm an executive fellow. And so it's a very different world. So it's very different in the sense that I have different parts of my career now, but it's also different in what I do, right? So I do a lot of speaking. I do a lot of talking about the book. I do a lot of working with companies and executives who are trying to understand these issues. And I think there's like a sense of DEI's if you spend an hour with it, you'll be able to understand it. And it's not like that. And every company has different flavors of it. So I spend a lot of time educating and really storytelling. A lot of my work is based on the story. So I interviewed 500 women of color 
in writing the book. I've now met with thousands and my work is now expanding to women a little bit more. And so I'm really telling those stories and sharing the data. And so that's really a lot of what my work is centered on. But I would say even the nature of how I work is different. I used to go from wake up in the morning, be on my phone, travel, meetings, meetings, meetings. And a lot of what I do is trying to create space to be creative and to write and to think and to hold space for other women. I felt like when I was in my corporate career, especially since we're having this conversation at the top of the year, there's times where I have to be on when I'm on a stage or on a company setting. There's other times where I'm trying to be quiet because I'm really trying to put words to issues that I think are hard to understand. So I would say that my work is very different and it's almost like a portfolio sort of approach to my work now, but also it's just the energy and the way my day looks is fundamentally different. So it's really interesting. So let's talk a little bit about your book. It's called The First, The Few, The Only. And I would love you to tell listeners how you got to the point where you knew you had to leave your corporate job. What was happening to you physically? How were you going to make that decision? And how hard was that to leave a role where so much identity and accomplishments were built up over so long? Yeah, it was very hard. So I had made partner relatively early in the process in comparison to others. And so I was a relatively young partner. I also was our first Indian female partner. And I say that because I had a lot of eyes on me and I didn't really understand that at the time. It took me probably three years longer to leave in hindsight than probably I should have. And for me, it was two things. I had this growing sort of calling around purpose. I think some of what was happening in our country around the conversations we're having around race, around politics. My background, as I shared, was Kennedy School in politics and policy. So I started to have this real crisis of conscience, almost like I'm not doing what my 14-year-old self thought I'd be doing. Am I doing my life's purpose? And so that had been something I'd been sitting with for probably four or five years. And then I started to get sick and it started with small issues. And then over the course of my last probably year at Deloitte, it really got to be a set of issues that were growing. So headaches, skin rashes, tired, exhausted all the time. I tell a story in the book where I was at my 14th doctor. She looks at me and she spreads all my reports across her desk. And she says, we can keep running tests or I can tell you what you already know. I think your job is killing you. And then she asked me these three life-changing questions. What would you do if you didn't do a big job like this? Do you feel like you have to do a job like this to be productive or to be worthy? And don't you just see you're worthy being you? That set of questions is a powerful set of questions for anybody to ask, let alone a doctor. I really felt like she saw through me. And I think that's where I was. Like I was working to live, I think, at the time. And I think some of this comes from my immigrant parents' upbringing where success and stability is really important and they'd sacrifice so much to come here. And here I am in this really successful career, but I'm not necessarily doing what I think I should be doing. And there's some mismatch of alignment. And so my process to leave was complicated. I kind of started to say, I'm not sure this works for me, but it took me about three years And I say again in the book that I wrote my work obituary over and over again for almost six months before I sent it in. And my process of leaving came about from meeting women of color, which is what kind of led me to the book and the work that I do now. Like I said, I didn't know that I was carrying responsibility for being a first. Because I was a first, I think I felt really responsible without realizing it. So I did not feel like I could quit. I felt like there were a lot of eyes on me that my quitting would not only be my failure, but would signal potential concerns for other people. So I think I sat in the seat for longer. In an attempt to figure out what I wanted to do, I started meeting with women of color, like head of DEI roles. Do you like the work? What are you doing? Where is a great place to go? What's an industry I might want to explore? Those turned into about a dozen dinners across the country where I met 300 women of color. 
We would do 20, 30 person dinners. They were just informal get togethers. But we started to see patterns in the conversation. So many of these women were experiencing a lot of the same sort of patterns. And this was prior to George Floyd's murder. So we weren't really talking about race at work in the way that I think we talk about it now and even just in this country. These women were so starved for connection and belonging and some of the issues they were facing. So I left those sessions feeling like there's something here. There's something that I can really relate to from my own experiences of being a first, but also just something here that's universal. That's really where I got the permission, I think, to leave, where I got to see, like, I think I'm sitting in the seat because of responsibility, not because it serves me as a human anymore. And I saw that maybe my work could be really kind of explaining some of what's happening to us. And my work is so much based in not pointing at first few and onlys and saying, look at all these amazing trailblazers, but more, what are the challenges that these women are facing? Let's talk about those because I don't want first few and onlys. I want many. And in order to get to the many... We have to really not just kind of uphold the 10 that have made it, right, like to the CEO level, but really talk about why are there so few of us and why are so many of us opting out and what's happening. And so it came from the collective, and that's why I think my work right now is so focused on that sort of collective voice. Ryland, you took yourself off of a front office role yourself. And when you hear Deepa's stories about giving herself permission to do something else that was maybe more meaningful or more purpose-driven Does that resonate with you? How did you think about making a choice yourself like that? So much of what she just said really resonated with me. And I think one thing I would add, I had to silence my ego a little bit. I was on this path. I was kind of a third year VP in corporate banking. I was this close, I felt like, to getting my own clients. I think a lot of times when you're on a path, you think I've got to stay on this path and I've got to hit this point. And I had to let go of that when it wasn't easy and it did hurt. I remember calling up my mentor at the time, who was the head of the business and he had given me that great opportunity to be the resource manager. Then, you know, this is a long haul and there's some skills that kind of put you in the middle of the pack that you may not get there in the time frame you want to get there in. And he said, I'm saying this to you not to make you feel bad. I'm saying this to you because I love you and I care about you. I really had to listen. As much as it hurt, I kind of just had to let go. And I'm so glad that I did because it put me on a path to doing work that was more fulfilling for me personally and professionally and stretched me in different ways. I was energized by the corporate banking work I was doing because I was helping my clients. And I also am a huge nerd when it comes to problem solving. I'm that person that loves logic puzzles and Sudoku and all those things. So like the hairier the problem, the more excited I get. So I, I love doing that for my corporate clients. I wasn't still getting that creative outlet. No day is the same. I have the ability to problem solve, to propose creative solutions. And to deepest point, this is such complex work. All the clients, the internal clients I have now, they're all in different places. And so you really have to think through, okay, what's the challenge here? What's the problem we're trying to solve? Where are they on their journey? What are the specific things that we could do here to get them on a path to become the business and to have the culture that they want to have? And so I'm really energized by having that creative outlet and marrying it with the ability to problem solve as well. What I'm thinking about and listening to both your stories is it takes so much effort and so long sometimes for women to get to these tables of power, to get to the levels that you're both at. We spend a long time doing this. We are working in the trenches right alongside our male colleagues. And when you achieve this level of success, it can be very hard to step back from this, feeling like you've put so much effort into it. You've got to keep going. You've got to show others you can keep going. But at a certain point, you have to make that trade-off for yourself and do what's right for you at this particular moment. So really appreciate hearing this. And I think many of our listeners will as well. 
Deba, I want to go back to the book and some of your messages that you've been writing about and talking about, particularly what kinds of things do we need to shed and get rid of? And what kinds of things do we need to carry forward? You use these terms, shedding and carrying. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah. And I have to say, it's a great follow-up to the statement you just made. I mean, I think a lot of us stay in situations and the research supports this. Women of color and women in particular stay in situations longer than serve them because we've been taught, right, that there might not be better coming along or that you have to be grateful and thankful for the opportunities that you have, whether that's relationships, whether that's work, whether that's all kinds of things. And so there's a lot of messaging that happens. So a lot of the work that I do and a lot of the writing is about, yeah, shedding and caring, shedding messages that don't serve you and carrying forth new messages that do. I think what we don't realize, and this is true for everybody, that a lot of the messages we get about our purpose and what's possible, and even our concepts on things like race and gender come from our families, come from our education, come from how we grew up. And if we don't do the work to really kind of look at those messages and say, are those the messages that I agree with as an adult, right? We just kind of inherit or we just kind of sit with those messages and let them take over. So sometimes what I find is women will stay in situations because they've been taught, again, to be grateful, to be thankful, that they are not smart enough, that they don't have the skill set. And a lot of that happens in the education system. A lot of that happens because they've gotten those messages, times were tough with their parents. And so it's really sitting down and figuring out as an adult human, how do you want to lead? What's important to you? How do you want to show up? And finding ways to show up in that sort of voice at all times. And what I find is a lot of in corporate spaces, the values and the characteristics and the traits that we value, we characterize some of the things that are more empathic or caring or some of the things that we consider more feminine qualities, not valuable in corporate spaces. And I think a lot of the dialogue you're seeing, especially coming out of COVID, is that those things are just as important. And so shedding and carrying can be about messages, but shedding and carrying can also be about how you carry yourself, how you lead, what's important. And to tie back to what you said before, when I finally announced I was leaving on LinkedIn, I'm leaving my 20-year career, when I still had 20 years in front of me, what was really fascinating with that message, and it got like 70,000 views or something, a lot of Asian practitioners in particular reached out, men and women, saying to me, asking me, like, how did you leave your job? Like, what did your parents say? It was really fascinating to see that. So this idea of shedding and carrying, I think, really carries forward to how we work, the roles that we take on, the ways in which we work, like how we structure our family and how we structure the workplace. And so I think it's really important to do that work to figure out, again, as an adult woman, what do I want my work to look like? How do I want to show up? What space does it take up? By default... I think we're just kind of inheriting what we've been taught. Deepa, I would love to talk more about your new company, Information. Tell us about the mission of the company and how it is that you serve your clients. It's a community that we've created to create safe, brave, and new space for women of color. We purposely focused on bringing women of color together versus kind of focusing on the company aspects first, because we felt like there was some power that was really necessary the last few years in particular where women and women of color could ask for more, could kind of set their boundaries, could say no to things. And so what we started with during the pandemic was sort of weekly sort of discussion groups and programming. Sometimes it would be speakers talking about power or setting boundaries. We have curriculum that my co-founder and I through the work that we do. And then we would also do once a month sort of safe spaces where we talk about different issues that were happening. Now, two years into the creation of our company, we've now moved more to a less frequent model because women, especially getting 
pulled back to the office, right? That's proving hard, but it was really fascinating to watch over the last few years. I think people really craving community. I think that we're in a moment where this, we're leaning on each other in a very different way. Women are coming together in a very different way. And so we would have conversations on things like, what does it mean to even be a woman of color? Like, what does that term mean? Because we had some of our Latina sisters who would say, I'm a white passing woman. That term doesn't work for me. Naomi Osaka stepped away from the French Open. We had a 90 minute conversation with about a hundred women on what can I say no to? Like, what does that mean for me? Powerful, powerful conversations that I think we don't get to have out elsewhere. Maybe there's an article that you'll see in a business journal, but you don't actually get to sit with another group of women that you don't know very well, right? And just have these conversations. What was so fascinating to me, and I think for me, one of the biggest moments was in our first quarter, we did a survey of the women that we had in the community. And we said, what's been the impact of being in this group? And 25% of the women said they either asked for more money, bigger jobs, or left their jobs just after four months. And again, not because we're doing any magical programming, but because they were in community and they saw other women ask for more. I think it's a little bit of just seeing that model that you can ask for more, you can set boundaries, you can go and seek out what you want. If you're not getting paid, you think you're worth, there are other options. But sometimes when you're in your job or in your bubble, you don't realize that. And so there's been something really powerful in this community that crosses industries all over the country. There's some power in just the dialogue. And I think that's what we're really doing. They don't have access to others. And when you put us together and you realize that these are universal problems, there's just power and freedom in asking for more. And so that's really what we're trying to do. It's super exciting to hear about the kind of benefit. You can really feel that energy and the gains that women are then going after. I'm curious, you spent so much time at Deloitte counseling clients a certain way. Now you're an entrepreneur counseling them a different way. What have been the differences to you? And what kind of your own persona can you bring to these conversations now that maybe you couldn't before? When you're a consultant, especially with one of the big firms, there's a way you have to present yourself and there's a way that you get people to listen to you. And sometimes you, I don't want to say you water down the message, but when you're in in big companies, and I work with like the Fortune 100 companies, there is a way that you have to present data and the way you have to get them to get on board. And you can't go right to what you know the answer is. You got to take them on the journey. And I think as someone who's now more of an entrepreneur in this space, or even like a thought leader sometimes in this space, I'm called upon to push the envelope. So I've probably been in 300 companies over the last 12 months. I'm not going to be all rosy. Like you want me, I'm going to be really honest and I want to have a really helpful conversation. Some of them are scared, but we end up having an honest conversation, a very different conversation. So I think the difference is from the business, the buttoned up, the corporate, lead with the business case and the data, which I start to roll my eyes at now. This conversation I can have in a very different way because I story tell, right? And there's nothing you can do once I tell a story that, You can't pull that apart. And I'll just give you one example. One of the most powerful stories in the book that I like to share when I'm on stage is is a story about a Black woman in the Midwest. And she joined this consumer products company. And I met her about six months, nine months in. She knew when she joined the company, she was the only Black woman in her department. When I met her 40 minutes into the conversation, she started crying pretty deeply because I don't think she had realized how much she was doing. Again, this sort of being more conscious of how much you take on. And she said to me, Deepa, I moved my family to the Midwest for this job, my husband and my kids. What we're talking about now, I'm realizing my kids are probably going through. I knew when I joined the department, I'm the only Black woman in the department. I now know I'm the only Black woman in the entire company. I did not know that. And we're one of the only Black families in the entire town. She said, I didn't realize before how much I represent my race at work. It's how I present myself. And she went through this long list, what I talk about 
what I focus on, what I eat for lunch, pictures I put in my office. Like it was this extensive list because she said, I'm the only black person many of my white colleagues have ever met. And so I want to make sure, and she did air quotes, so that they have a good experience with all black people. And I heard similar stories from some of the Muslim women I interviewed and others. I don't think we understand the scope of what we take on in some of these jobs and some of these roles when you're a first or fewer and only. You take on a lot outside of the job you were hired to do. And to be clear, she's an accountant. She's not HR. She's not calm. She's not something where like some of those things, maybe in some weird way that would, that would make sense. But that's what I do. I storytell using those stories when I share that. And I say to a room full of people, how many people in this room can kind of relate to that? How much do you hide of your race, your ethnicity? How much do you not tell these stories? Or how much do you feel like you represent more than what you are as just yourself? There's a lot less that people can push back on. But I think that's kind of the dialogue that we need to get to. And those are the stories we need to tell. And that's how I have the conversation. So it's very different. It's not like look at this data and how many people have exited. You need that too, but there's lots of other people that can do that. I have these really magical, unique stories that women have shared with me that I think we need to hear more of because if we don't hear those, we can't fix the burden that I think is placed on some of the most impacted and most marginalized in our society and in our workplaces. That is so powerful. And I think everyone or a lot of people could probably relate to something in there when that story is told, feeling like that you have to carry so much of the burden and how exhausting that is. It is hard enough to do these jobs and have a family and everything else, but then to carry other things is really tough. Rylan, you and I have looked at a lot of data over the years, and I'm kind of curious from your perspective, how do you blend using the data with also telling the stories and influencing people through both means of communication? The answer is it depends, right? I can very much relate to what Deep was saying around when I go in front of a lot of the senior leaders. I mean, the businesses I cover, we have six operating committee members across our business. When I go in to present to them as a group, it is very much leaning into the data. But then I try to surgically insert some of these little quick stories to drive home the point because storytelling is the most powerful tool. People don't remember, they can remember maybe one or two facts and figures, but what's really going to move them, what they're going to be talking about months and even years from now is the stories that they hear. I have to be really strategic and as I said, surgical and in inserting those stories, but I do. And then I try to share stories about myself. That is also a really powerful tool two times over because it helps illuminate my experience as a woman of color, but it also demonstrates being vulnerable and what that looks like. And I think to the point about going through the last three years has kind of shifted things. There's more focus, obviously, on DEI and race, but there's so much more to that. Mental health, talking about how are you doing as an employee and really leaning into that. One of the stories, I've actually never shared this story at JP Morgan, but I'll share it in terms of my life experiences. Before the Trayvon Martin incident happened, my family lived that. So I grew up in, as I said, Atlanta in a predominantly white neighborhood. And my teenage brother was living with us. He's about seven years older than me. When I was in elementary school, he had gone to the mall, which was like a mile away from where we lived. He took the bus. And on his way back, a guy who lived across the street from us saw him get off at the bus stop, followed him to my parents' house. And my dad car, which was a luxury car, was in the driveway. It happened to have a flat tire. And this guy thought that my brother was trying to steal the car and he approached him with a shotgun. My mom, fortunately, was upstairs and looked out the window and saw it. So she raced downstairs, ran out the front door, screaming my brother's name so that the guy would know, like, he lives here. We know him. This is not what you think it is. 
was a young child at the time, but it was really eye-opening for me. And to go to school with predominantly white classmates who never treated me differently or anything like that, but to know that they didn't have that experience as a young person. And I don't hold that against anybody. And you're just exposed to so much more and you're carrying so much around with you that other people may have never had to experience that, never had to think about something, never had to worry about something. It's hard to bring that to life unless you tell stories to really impress upon people what different experiences you can have depending on your dimension of diversity, whether that's race, whether that's gender, whether that's having a disability. The storytelling is the most powerful tool we can use. Rylan, thank you for telling us that. I'm really sorry your family went through that as it is terrifying and really just reminds us this is common, unfortunately. One of the things that we've talked about with some guests on this podcast is around women's ambition. So I want to switch over to this topic and really ask you both, would you describe yourselves, first of all, as ambitious? And second, how has ambition changed for you over your career in terms of what you want for yourself? Deepa, let's start with you. Yeah. I mean, I hands down would have said before, I think it started probably when I was a teenager, I was highly ambitious. I would say more competitive. I think I'm more comfortable with that word than ambitious because I think ambitious is a little bit more vaguely defined, but I was always competitive and always really good at everything I did. And so, yes, I think that carried forth. So I got really sick. I spent eight months in bed. I feel like it's a remission now, late stage Lyme disease. I had full neuropathy, like pins and needles in my arms and legs. Like it would be hard to walk sometimes, like the whole thing. And so I went through a process of really evaluating. That's when I chose to leave after that eight months. Like I just didn't want to be in a job where I was on the road all the time. That's what the doctor was talking about when she said, you know, is your job killing you? Like eating out every day. I was living in a hotel. I was flying six times a week. That's really hard on your body. And so that's maybe not the best thing when someone is actually chronically ill. And so I think my definition, I would change it. It's less about ambition. That word doesn't even like mean anything to me anymore. It's success. I have really stepped back and defined success really differently. I think when I was at Deloitte and when I was younger, success was rising, right? It was getting to a seat and I moved hyper fast, right? And I got to all the seats and I got all the accolades. And even now people say to me, like the affiliation with Harvard Business School, right? There's prestige around that, but it doesn't mean the same things it might've meant to me 10, 20 years ago. I think for me now, success, I realize is so tied to health. I'm still figuring out what that is because I'm only two years out of corporate and this is probably like a 10 year journey. I don't want to give up or trade what I have to trade for, I think, what some of that success or ambition look like in my past life. And I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like now. And so much of for me now is impact-based is like I get more value rather than like a great review from Time Magazine, the women who reach out. Like I just have hundreds of women who read the book and reach out, you know, thousands probably last year just saying like, I never saw myself in a book, right? Or like I'm going through this crisis and it's really helpful. That means a lot more right now. So I think I'm not saying I'm not ambitious and I don't want to be successful, but how I see that has really changed. By the way, I think it's changed for a lot of people and not just women. I think COVID has made us question our values and what matters and how we want to work and the space that work takes up in our lives. And we don't have great answers, right? We're almost in that moment in 2023 as we're shifting back to like some of the old ways and back to like being at the office. Where do we want to go? We've kind of uncapped something and learn something about ourselves as humans. And what do we want to go back to? I think that's the real question. So I think it's a universal question. And so for me, it's less ambition, more what does success look like and what am I chasing? Like? Ryland, what about you? 
Last year, a senior person used that word to describe me and they meant it as a compliment. I was taken aback by it, but I'm going to say, yes, I am ambitious. I want to reclaim that word. I want to make it a positive word. So I'm going to say, yes, I am ambitious. I want to just keep growing and amplifying my impact. I mean, that is what I aspire to do every day. Some people say it can be a little bit intimidating at times, but again, I'm not going to apologize for aspiring to do great work and to help people. And I don't do it to be intimidating. I do it because I care about the work that I do and because I don't take the little things for granted. There's so many times where somebody asking me, oh, I'm writing this email to send to this. Can you take a look at it? And I'll look at it and I'll say, would you be excited to get this email? Would you be excited about this program or event that you're promoting and they're like, no. I'm like, why are you writing it that way? If you wouldn't be excited to receive it, then you know, you got to go back to the drawing board. And so that's what I aspire to do in everything. I try to do things that excite me, that I would be excited to receive, that I would be excited to participate in, that I would be excited to be a part of. That's my standard. If I'm not hitting that standard, again, why do it? Our time is precious. We've got a lot going on. And and so I'm going to give it all I've got. And of course, you have to look out for your own well-being. Like you said, you can't say yes to everything. And I have definitely gotten comfortable with saying no to things and learning how to delegate. But when I take something on, I want to knock it out of the park. And if I don't knock it out of the park, I'm human and I'm going to learn from it and keep going and use it to my advantage on the next thing. Well, Deepa and Ryland, it has been such a pleasure to talk to both of you. I'm really inspired by this conversation and I'm really grateful that both of you had dedicated so much of your careers to helping other people, to helping women of color in particular. It makes such a difference. You both are really driving great impact. And so thank you. I'm sure our listeners will really come away with a lot from this conversation. Thank you, Sam. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Ryland and Deepa. It was so moving to hear their stories. And I think the conversation really emphasizes the importance of listening to and supporting women of color in the workplace. I hope that you also feel inspired and that you take the time to read Deepa's book, The First, The Few, The Only. The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. To learn more about Women on the Move and listen to the full library of this podcast, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash W-O-T-M. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC.